Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's been eight weeks. Believe it or not, my maternity leave is over and it's time to begin this new normal as a wife, a mom, and a pastor. And I felt that it was only appropriate to begin this new season by offering a word of thanks to you. Thank you for this time to, to be with my family, to get to know this little one that had been growing inside me for nine months, and to live into this reality of sleepless nights and, uh, and figuring out what being a mom looks like. So thank you for that time. Many of you have been a part of Alec and my journey to parenthood for a long time. I still have this voice message on my phone from Brenda Geis gushing over hearing that I was pregnant. She told me that she was so excited for me and that this proved to her that God performs miracles. I had no idea. Thanks, Brenda. I share with anyone who will listen, Dax is a gift. God didn't have to give us a child. We weren't deserving, but God did. And we are thankful. Every day as we look at him and his sweet little face, we thank God for his gift of Dax, this unwarranted gift. And so we do our best to honor this gift. I pray every day that Dax will grow to look more and more like Jesus and that he will be a person of justice and bring joy to many people. So thank you for being on this journey with me and my family and being my family here in San Jose. You are now grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins to Dax. You are the ones who will show them on a regular basis what it means, what it looks like to live a life of faith. It's ups, it's downs, it's joys, and it's pains. I've got a question for you. Are you ever surprised by what comes to mind when you have a lot of time to think? I was. Almost immediately after having begun maternity leave, I remember looking at Dax, the sweet, innocent-looking baby, and thinking about my sin. Now, this was not something that I was expecting. I wasn't expecting to... <laughs> have this time that in my mind would be used for joy and excitement and getting rest, and instead almost immediately thinking of my sin. As I looked at his little face, I couldn't help but hope that he would be better than me, stronger in faith, more loving, more generous. I thought of friendships that have disappeared, ways that I have failed to love, and of the daughter 
and sister that I wish I had been. I spoke with a Christian friend about this who told me, when you have a child, it's common to want to be the best role model for them. And then you do the internal work. You start seeing how you have fallen short and you see your sin. So long as it brings you to confession and not to shame, this is good. Considering my recent journey and the journey we have been on as a country and as a nation, there can be no scripture more apropos than John 15. So we will meditate on this this morning. Jesus has begun to prepare his disciples for his departure. He says that he will leave them, but he won't abandon them. He will send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with them. The Holy Spirit will teach them all things and will remind them of what Jesus has told them. Then Jesus paints a picture of who he is. In the Gospel of John, this is what Jesus does. In his desire to reveal himself to his disciples, he paints a picture with words. And in John, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, I am the true grapevine. Jesus longs to be known by his disciples. He knows that they won't ever fully grasp who he is what his identity is, but he paints a picture and invites them to imagine. Jesus is the true grapevine. All other grapevines are inconsequential in light of Jesus and aren't worth their time. Jesus' father is the gardener. The gardener does his work to produce the juiciest grapes. And if a branch doesn't produce anything, he cuts it off. If a branch does produce something, he prunes it so that it can produce juicy, plump, high-quality grapes. Jesus goes on to say, remain in me, and I will remain in you. Or in our discipleship language, we would say, abide in me, and I will abide in you. The Greek word for remain or abide is the same. And it's a favorite of John's, as you might imagine. John uses this word almost as many times as the rest of the Gospels combined. John uses remain or abide 23 times, and the rest of the Gospels, 25. So this is a favorite of John's. Clearly, abiding is important to John. But what does it mean? What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Well, firstly, it means what comes to your mind. Praying, reading scripture, being a part of the worshiping community and participating in Holy Communion, like we will do today. These are all parts of what it means to abide. There's one more aspect of abiding in John, which comes a little bit later in this chapter. 
If you've got your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them to John chapter 15. Look at verse 10. When you obey my commandments, you remain or abide in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus' disciples abide in Jesus by obeying him. Obedience. Eek. This is kind of a dirty word. Owners take their dogs to obedience school, and parents hope that their children will will obey them. But obedience is not something that adults want for themselves. When pastor and author Eugene Peterson sent a book to his editor, he sent it with this title, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. His editor immediately rejected the title. He wrote, Obedience is a dull word, dead in the water. It didn't fit the ambiance of contemporary American religion. But Eugene held out. He believed it was a protest word against the fad-chasing, self-centered individualism of American spirituality. Eugene wrote him a letter. I know we aren't used to this. We've grown up in a culture that urges us to take charge of our own lives. We are introduced to thousands of books that we are trained to use. Look up information, acquire skills, master knowledge, divert ourselves, whatever. But use? Well-meaning people tell us that the Christian gospel will put us in charge of life, will bring us happiness and bounty. So we go out and buy a Bible. We adapt, edit, sift, summarize. We then use whatever seems useful and apply it in our circumstances however we see fit. We take charge of the Christian gospel, using it as a toolbox to repair our lives, or as a guidebook for getting what we want, or as an inspirational handbook to enliven a dull day. But our task is to obey, believingly, trustingly, obey, simply obey in a long obedience. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction was published in 1980. As out of vogue as obedience may be, this is what Jesus calls his disciples to do. He calls his disciples to abide in his love by obeying his commands, just as he abides in his Father's love by obeying his commands. And what is Jesus' command? Take a look at verse 12. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. Let's take a bit bit of a step back. Who is Jesus' audience here? Who is he speaking to? Jesus was speaking to his disciples. The 12 had been with Jesus for almost three years since the beginning of his ministry. And after having given up everything to follow him and working alongside Jesus, learning from him, being trained by him for three years, you would think that they would not need to learn to love one another. You wouldn't think it would be so difficult. But it was. 
The disciples were Jews, but they were just as different as they possibly could have been. They were on opposite ends of the political spectrum. Matthew, or Levi, was a toll collector, and Simon was a zealot. Matthew was a toll collector, meaning that he collected money from the Jews to pay the Roman government, and then he profited from it. Simon was a zealot. Zealots were people who desired to overthrow the Roman government, so they were at complete odds. Others wanted to fight out who was the greatest disciple. Peter and others were salt-of-the-earth people. They were fishermen, unlikely to have been chosen to be anyone's disciples. The Twelve were an unusual group of suspects and almost assuredly would not have been put together in a group by anyone else. Leave it to Jesus. The last words that Jesus commands is that they love one another. And the greatest demonstration of that love is to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is what Jesus does. He lays down his life for you and for me. We are friends who don't make any sense. We are so different from one another, and each one of us is so sinful. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies of God. You and I did not deserve Jesus, but he called us friends. And then he died for you and for me. Jesus commands his disciples to follow his example, to love one another. Love the one you don't understand. Love the one who is a part of a different or even fanatical political group. Love the one who betrays you. Love the one who doesn't show love to you. Jesus' command to love one another is a command to his disciples, to you and to me. And it is how we abide in Jesus. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God, but hates his fellow believer, he is a liar. For if we don't love people who we can see, how can we love God who we cannot see? A couple of years ago, I met with a group of pastors to beef up on our preaching skills. Almost immediately in one of our sessions, I heard one of the fellow pastors complained that their church was a purple church. I'd never heard that term before. Maybe I should have, but I'd never heard that term before. And so I asked someone sitting next to me, what does a purple church mean? Well, it's a church where there are both Democrats and Republicans, red and blue and red. They have a purple church. And throughout our time together, this complaint kept being heard. I'm upset because I'm a pastor of a purple church. 
This seemed to be the most difficult reality to navigate, a congregation of differing political ideologies, and they wished that everyone was the same. Life would be so much easier if we were all the same, wouldn't it? You can say whatever you want, and you get a nod of approval. You feel motivated because instead of fighting one another, instead of tension, you feel a thrust in the same direction. You feel affirmed that you are right and the others are wrong. It just feels good. It would be so much easier if we were all the same. But that is not something that Jesus affirms, and that is not our calling as his disciples. Our calling is to love one another without exception and without caveats. This is how we are loved. So we love one another so much that we're ready to die for one another. This is how we abide in Jesus. And this is how others will know we are his disciples by our love. I'd like to lead us in a time of silent confession. We have confessed earlier in our worship together, but I'd like this to be a little bit more pointed. I want you to take this time to think about ways in which you have not loved your brothers and sisters. We will confess that and pray for Jesus' presence. Holy God, by looking at your word, we are reminded of our sinfulness. When we hear the words, abide in me, by obeying my commands, by loving one another, we are reminded of the ways in which we have fallen short, ways in which we have not loved our brothers and sisters as ourselves. We pray that you would forgive us. We pray that we would be a people who would love one another so much that it doesn't make sense, that we are willing to die for one another. We pray that you would use our differences to show the world that you are the one who unites us not our similarities, not our desires. You are the one who unites us. We thank you for your forgiveness. We pray that you would guide us into this new season. We thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May we abide in Jesus as he abides in us. May the world know that we are his disciples because of our radical love for one another. Amen.